And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I've met lots and lots of people in politics in my life, but no one smarter or more passionate about politics, about public service, about this country than Paul Begala. Uh, Paul, as many of you know, uh, has been uh, involved in most or of the major campaigns uh, of the last 30 years on the Democratic side. He famously partnered up with uh, James Carville to win a series of stunning uh, statewide races and then uh, in, the, in the 80s and early 90s and then hooked up with Bill Clinton. And uh, Carville and Begala were really the driving force behind the election of Bill Clinton in 1992. He served in that administration. Uh, he's been uh, uh, the host of Crossfire, and uh, 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 he is a commentator on CNN and a constant presence in uh, the political dialogue. Uh, but more than anything, he is a really, really interesting guy, as you can hear for yourself. So my friend Paul Begala, we have known each other for a quarter century. Yeah. Uh, but when you prepare for these podcasts, you learn stuff about people that you didn't know. I've you always, prepare? I've always thought, <laughs> barely, but I, I've always thought of you as one of the smartest political guys I've ever known. So I want you to explain to me how one loses a race for student body president to Hank the... <laughs> Hank the it's Hallucination, like which you only. did at the University of Texas. Hank the Hallucination beat you yes. on a write-in. <laughs> How did that great. happen? Actually, this is, was, it was hugely instructive for the rest of my career. First off, defeat is always the best teacher. But <laughs> the students, five years before I arrived on campus at University of Texas, they had abolished student government in the sort of nihilistic way of the 70s. Oh, it's ridiculous. We got there, uh, my generation... And we looked around the campus, and back then, this is, you know, 1981, 82, $7 million a year in student fees were being spent by the president of the university with no student input. Well, that's, that's taxation without representation. <laughs> power abhors a vacuum, right? So the power the student government had didn't go away. It went to the campus administration, who I did not like and did not share our values. Yeah. So we actually lobbied the legislature. Our state senator then was former student body president, Lloyd Doggett. They passed a law, a bill, that we helped uh, push through that said the university can't spend it without student input. So we started getting student input, and I was on the committee that helped kind of begin to control those fees. It wasn't enough, so we had a move to reconstitute student government, and we did. And uh, one of the cartoonists at the school paper created Hank the Hallucination to run for student body president. <laughs> Hank's slogan was, get real, because he was a hallucination. So it was perfect. He won... Uh, and then, and then uh, there was a uh, well. Tragically, he was he was uh, cut down in his prime. Oh no! Uh, in the strip, the comic strip, there were hit squads going after him, and the bullets went right through <laughs> him because he was a hallucination. A hallucination, yes. Well, Hank turned a corner and frightened a little girl. He was a big uh, uh, glob, you know, sort of dinosaur-looking yeah. uh, hallucination, and he frightened this little girl, and she went bang with her little finger and a little play gun. And, and that was it for Hank. Of course, imaginary bullet kills. So. 
I got. Were all you the... at all connected since you were I running Guess Hank? Were you connected <laughs> to that little girl? No, no, I was connected to the comic strip guy. Oh, I see. Sam Hurt wrote the strip. He was a buddy of mine. We had a few beers. Uh, he bumped Hank off, and then I got all the Hank voters. Why? Because I went out on the West Mall, the main mall at campus, and I said, if you vote for me, I'll build a statue of Hank. And here it is. And I waved a sheet. And, you know, with, with enough inspiration and 11 herbs and spices, you can still go to that spot and see <laughs> that hallucinatory monument to Hank. But honestly, I learned a lot. And so what, we, what I learned was government has to deliver for people in their real lives. That the people who were the nihilists against Hank, they had a point, which is if it's just about resume padding, Right? It's just about like looking good to try to get into law school. It's a waste of time. So what did we do? I'm very proud of this. I, it was, it's, it's been in the papers again lately because uh, there was an attack on the campus. I helped create a group called SURE, Students United for Rape Elimination, 1983. It is still there. And, and after this tragic murder on campus, it's uh, more important than ever. Um, my wife and girlfriend created uh, campus recycling, which we never had until the 80s. And a child care center, which we didn't have for students. Faculty had one. Students didn't. Um, we delivered on things that actually mattered in people's lives. And so student government became popular and became cool because rather than sort of symbolism and, and symbolic politics, rather than resume padding, we thought, what do students actually need? And we delivered on this thing. Didn't hurt that we helped kill a bill to raise a drinking age, too. That made me very popular <laughs> on campus, and we kept the drinking so, age at 18. So then your, uh, but then your electoral career ended at the age of 21. <laughs> it did. I so it sounds like, I mean, it sounds like you were building a platform to run on here. <laughs> Highest office I could ever aspire to is student body president university. I'm still very active there. I mean, last night was emailing with the outgoing uh, student body president on campus there. I'm still real active. My son's a student, uh, and, and I'm just thrilled. I really do believe, obviously, in government, and I love seeing these kids uh, uh, engaged and, and making a difference. But that was it for me. I, I never wanted to. Run now, again. is Hank? Uh, is there uh, an annual memorial to Hank the Hallucination? There used to be Hank Stock, which was <laughs> a big party we had. But I think now that all of us are in late middle age, we've kind of stopped it. That's over, huh? <laughs> so you. Uh, By the way, one of the guys who was one of the biggest skeptics that government could do any good, Mark McKinnon. Yes. Who I wound up being an advisor McKinnon. to George W. Bush, who proved that government would screw up a one-car parade if you have the wrong people <laughs> in charge. He, uh, was he a Hank guy? Yeah, he was sort of fading out. You know what I mean? He was aging out. He, he was a couple <laughs> years ahead of me and had been the editor of the paper. I have to say, Mark gets this wrong. He puts himself as the editor at the time. He wasn't. Johnny Schwartz was, now a reporter for the New York Times. Uh -huh. Johnny was the editor of the paper. Mark had been a year or two before that, but was always... Back then, Mark was he wasn't a Democrat and he wasn't a liberal. He was a Marxist. Yeah. Okay, he was way out there. And so, of course, he was... And an aspiring it. songwriter, right? And an aspiring songwriter. Yeah. But uh, yeah, B B Big Mac was a, a great skeptic that government could do any good. And it's still so ironic that he wound up <laughs> advising George W. Bush. Well, I want to ask you about this because um, uh, you came... Uh, the, a bunch of you got together in 84, right? In mm -hmm. the Lloyd Doggett who you mentioned, who's now in Congress and has been for a couple of decades, a uh, great populist of Ada Austin, ran for the U.S. Senate in uh, 1984. Ta uh, tell me who the roster of people were who worked on that campaign. Yeah, pretty good. Well, McKinnon actually came in, just did data entry. He was looking for a job, and uh, he came in and, and did that. I was the travel aide. I carried the candidates' bags. By the end of the campaign, I was a speechwriter. 
because I had interned for Lloyd in his state senate office. I'd carried his bags and listened to him, and I have a pretty good ear. And so I was able to write the way he wanted uh, his speeches written, and that launched me as a speechwriter. Um, most importantly, our campaign manager uh, was yes. James Carville. Yes. First time I met James Carville was 1983, going into the 84 campaign. And uh, uh, James had never won a thing in his life. He was kind of a journeyman out of Baton Rouge. And uh, I still remember we were in a primary against Congressman Bob Kruger, moderate mm-hmm. Democrat, Congressman Kent Hance, conservative yes. Democrat, yeah. who, who got elected to the House beating George W. Bush. And then Doggett was the liberal Democrat. And back then, we thought the Democratic primary was it. It had been in Texas history until then. And so the two congressmen kept saying, well, Doggett has no Washington experience. It's hard to imagine today that that was a bad thing, but it was. He could never get a bill passed. He can't deliver for Texas because he's never even worked in Congress and Carville, in the interview, says, I think we just ought to say, we don't need more Washington thinking in Texas. We need more Texas thinking in Washington. <laughs> and I knew Doggett would never hire him because James was too unconventional. So I wrote it down and thought, I'm going to steal that line. Well, he wound up hiring James, and I've still stolen his lines ever since. And you ended up uh, uh, as sort of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance <laughs> Kid. Yeah, James is my partner for now 30 some odd years yeah. and the best friend you could ever hope for yeah. best business partner and all those years I don't know how many countries how many states never one fight about money fight about strategy fight about you know what we ought to be doing which clients to take sure never fight about money which is as you know in a partnership that's usually how these things bust up you know uh, in that same year I managed uh, uh, Paul Simon's campaign for right. the Senate in Illinois, 84. And in that race was David Wilhelm, who ended up wow. uh, being yeah. uh, your uh, manager, manager in 92 and the DNC chair. Uh, Forrest Claypool is a friend of mine who's now the school uh, uh, chief of the school system in Chicago and has been in a lot of different public offices. I, but the I walk in the office the first day and there's this tousle-haired guy on the phone screaming into the phone at some donor saying 500 bucks 500 bucks you 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 know you're telling me you don't give a damn about israel do you and he hung up the phone and he just stood there and watched the phone and the phone rang and he picked it up he said oh yeah no that's better so that was a 24 year old rama manual that's amazing rama manual and he hasn't changed a bit uh <laughs> since since whatever that happened time. to him but uh th- but it is great and it's, like you i love campaigns and i especially love the, the the fact that it attracts young people yeah i still love i miss the campaign headquarters you know and i travel around i try to go and campaign so one people, of the reasons I, why i started the institute of politics so because great. i love being around these kids give you hope yeah they give you hope but uh and it's just fun that's the thing that that you know yes it's hard work and it's heartbreaking I mean, when we worked for dog it was a worst defeat in texas history for a democrat that's heartbreaking um and, and uh, actually, a friend What's of mine... Phil Graham, is that? It was against Phil Graham. It was the Reagan landslide yes. in Texas, and we were buried. And Graham's enormously talented, but we, you know, we lost. And I still haven't fully gotten over it, but you, you need that too. You yeah. know, the, 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 the heartbreak, but also the, the camaraderie. Well, I mean, it's the thing of devoting yourself fully to something that has meaning. That, that where the consequences are real and right. uh, you think you're fighting for something bigger than yourself. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's addictive. You know, that's right. And I think everybody has that need to be a part of something larger than themselves. Senator McCain used to say that all the time. It wasn't just, you know, Senator Obama running saying, you know, yes, we can. The, the need to be a part of something larger than yourself, especially in a country like this that could become so atomized so quickly, so important to tie people back together. 
And, and campaigns can do that. Yes, it divides, you know, it, it, team A versus team B. But within that team, the closest friends of my life uh, I met through campaigns. You mentioned McCain. I want to get back to the, the, to your, the arc of your story. Um, it's kind of sad right now to see what's going on in Arizona because, you know, John McCain made his bones by being the maverick. Right. And, uh, and I think very courageously. And he seems now uh, uh, intimidated at, uh, by the Trump movement in his state. And uh, Trump uh, obviously uh, uh, said the most awful thing about him that one can say, which is that he wasn't a hero because prisoners of war aren't heroes. Uh, and um, McCain has not been eager to take him on. I think that's a shame. And as as someone who likes and admires yeah. Senator McCain, yeah, yeah. I feel like I, I do you know, well. we've had a glimpse at the real man who is a, a really impressive person and a great hero. I, I think as a strategist, he's he's betting on the wrong side here. The future of his state is <clears throat> not Sheriff Joe Arpaio and former Governor Jan Brewer and Donald Trump, yeah. the old, angry white people. That's not the future of his state. The future of his state is is younger and more diverse and increasingly Latino. He sponsored essentially the president's immigration, immigration plan. Reform, yes, absolutely. He, he got thirty one percent of the Hispanic vote. Not great, but a whole lot better than Romney. Um, he could make a claim based on his record, but he's going he's for Latino votes. He seems to be going the other way. I think that's a tragedy. Yeah. Well, I, you know the thing is that uh, he's going to be what eighty, almost eighty years old, and you want. Uh, he has not lost a step, want, though. I mean, no, no, I'm not, I'm not suggesting yeah. that at all. What I'm saying is he's earned the right to be John McCain. Right. And he ought to be John McCain, and he ought to win or lose as uh, as John McCain, it seems to me. I, I think he—this is—we're taping this June 22nd. Yes. Yeah. You, we're going to see—I I think at some point McCain's just going to stand up and punch Trump in the nose, rhetorically, I hope. Yeah, well, <laughs> I do. I don't think he can bottle it up. Yeah. I think he's actually too authentic. To, yeah. to, I think he's faking I when he says say, I, Trump is right. Yeah, you know, I think we saw uh, his uh, his the better angels of his nature in the 2008 campaign when mm-hmm. that woman in Minneapolis or in Minnesota at a rally said uh, Obama wasn't an American and McCain took her on in a front of a pretty hostile crowd. And I thought that that to me was the finest moment of that campaign for him. But anyway, getting back to you and 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 Carville, you you guys then became partners and you were partnered up in some uh one after another kind of upstart campaigns, uh Bob Casey in Pennsylvania. You know, Carville in my view is one of the great geniuses, political geniuses of our time and I've said that and I really admire him. But as you point out, he didn't start winning until he was like 40 years old. Right. And then he never stopped winning. Right. And the first one was that race in Pennsylvania where you took a guy who had lost several times before uh, and you won a really difficult race. He, Bob Casey, the late governor, was one of my heroes. Uh, he had run and lost three times before. And, you know, in Pennsylvania, the elites really looked down on him. He's a blue-collar guy out of Scranton. He was a lawyer. He's an accomplished guy. But his father had been a mule tender in the mines in Scranton, Casey's father. And Casey's father's fingers had all been broken by getting run over by coal carts that he would haul up with the mules. I mean, he was the real thing. He was like out of a John O'Hara short story. And the elites all looked down their noses at him. They used to call him the three-time loss from Holy Cross because, you know, he'd gone to that Catholic school in Massachusetts. Um, Casey wore his badge of honor 
And he taught me this. I say this to my kids all the time. The view from the canvas is highly educational. Mr. Casey, you say that all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you can pick yourself up again and, and put yourself forward. But it was an epic race. He was running against Bill Scranton, the third. And he, here was Casey, a son of a coal miner from Scranton. And then there was Scranton, the son of the coal mine owner from Scranton. It was epic. A very close race. By the way, in the primaries, Casey defeated a young Philadelphia DA. Yes, named Ed Rendell. Ed Rendell. Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, it, it was really a remarkable uh, race. And, and we've stayed close. You know, the governor has passed, but he, he and Mrs. Casey have eight kids, uh, one of whom, his oldest son, is the senator from Pennsylvania. And a great Also guy. a client of mine. Great, great guy. Just one a One of the guy. nicest people you'll ever meet in politics. He, in fact, acts, he called me just out of a curse. We're very close friends. And I'd helped in his campaign. And he called me when he decided to endorse Barack Obama yes. in the primaries. So Hillary had gone and campaigned for Bobby. So had Senator Obama in Pittsburgh. Yes. I was there. It was phenomenal. I mean, you, you, you know, I know people think Obama came out of nowhere. He was a once-in-a-generation talent. Yeah, I know. Even then. I know something about that. Yeah. yeah. And I remember Casey, you know, was torn. He'd had a relationship with the Clintons. But here was this young senator who took time out to go campaign for him and was electrifying. And it was over Easter weekend. And he called me up. He said, I went out to the lake. He had a lake house in Lake Ariel, northeast Pennsylvania. And he said, and I sat with the girls. He has four girls. And he said, I just, I can't be true to them and what we believe in as a family and not come out now and support Barack. And I thought that was so honorable. By the way, he called Hillary. And she was accepting of that. She wasn't happy. But the way he conducted himself, even opposing my candidate, was with such honor uh, he's just a remarkable guy. You know, uh, there's a postscript to that story that says something about both of them. Uh, I think it was the Reverend Wright story that broke around that time. And uh, mm-hmm. Senator Obama called Senator Casey and said, look, I appreciate your offer of support, but if it's too difficult for you, uh, you know, I release you from your obligation. And Casey said, no, I, I, I'm with you. I'm with you. I gave my commitment and I I feel no less strongly. And uh, he ended up spending six days on the bus with us in Pennsylvania in 2008. I, I, I would and, and say by that. He didn't I, do it just for his politics because the state was wired for Hillary. It was a Hillary state. It was not helpful right. uh, to him to do. And every single person who was on that campaign would tell you how much they love Bob Casey because he was so warm and so uh, embracing of all of us and, uh, and so humble. Uh, you know, he's really an unusual guy. So, I, so you won uh, the so Casey won, put us on the map. And then you went on to uh, Jersey, right? We went on to Kentucky. Actually, worked for Wallace Wilkinson oh, the next yes, year. Wallace Wilkinson. Who became yes. governor of Kentucky, um, uh, defeated John Y. Brown, the Kentucky Fried Chicken heir, and Steve Bashir, who wound up being a great governor yeah. in Kentucky. Later, Years later, um, yeah. But yeah, Wallace then came and, and won. It's the first time we'd ever worked for a wealthy candidate. That was kind of fun. Uh, and then we rolled. And helpful, too. Probably. And very helpful. Yes. Then actually, we split up. James went off to, to work in New Jersey for Frank Lautenberg. I signed on with Dick Gephardt. Oh, the that's presidential right. campaign. Yes, yes, yes. And uh, flamed out. And and uh, as these things happen, you know, went four months without a paycheck. We were on the opposite side of that one because Paul so Simon you were Paul was Simon, my client, yes. Who, if you had had one more week, you'd have won Iowa. Yeah, he was charging at the end, yeah. uh, and and he got it. He just projected. He was. It's he like was very Iowa authentic. Decency. Guy. Yes, yeah. yes. Just a great guy. And and you guys would have beat us if you had another one more week. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Uh, but as you know, these things. On the, on the other hand, I thought Gephardt might have won that race. Uh, you know, he he would have he would have been a, a strong candidate. I think he would have. But again, it taught me. You know, I just I obsess on these. Mike defeats. Dukakis was the nominee. Dukakis had more money and better organization. Yeah. 
Um, he also and he had been a governor. Which... He'd been a governor, but he he didn't. You know, unforced errors often kill you in these things. Here, Dick had decided he was the majority leader. Not yet. He was the the caucus chair. So he's yeah. like the fourth highest guy in the house, and had been a really gifted inside player, but authentically was concerned about especially trade, and and which and was the issue that he really he ran on that emphasized. Yeah. But then at the at the close of Iowa, his campaign organized a charter jet full of lobbyists yes. who flew to Iowa to campaign for him. Yes. And, and Paul Simon yes. and Dukakis yeah. we, we, quite we, rightly destroyed we, yeah, us on yes, that. Like, yeah. you can't be the outsider candidate. It was like and, an airlift of lobbyists. It was, it was exactly what it was. Yes, yeah. Um, and, you know, that... And he was that, on the Ways and Means Committee, so he had access to a lot of them. Right. And that internal contradiction, I think you'd positively call yeah, it's it. It's hard Probably to be a hypocrisy. populist and... And airlift, uh, airlift a bunch of lobbyists. Right, and that's an important yeah. thing in politics. Right, yeah. is 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 what Shakespeare say? To thine own self be true. Right, that was not true to Dick's message, and so quite rightly we got hammered for that. Um, that was one I'm, of the, I was a speechwriter. I didn't who organize that. Do you believe that. me or your lion eyes kind of thing? Right, you know? and and that, that that kind of authenticity. It's why it's maybe the best uh, shorthand of a campaign ever. When you said it's an MRI of the soul, Dick has a very good soul, but we did something that was really at odds with what we were running on, and quite rightly, we got spanked for it. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right about presidential races, and I, I did say that they're MRIs for the so I think we're seeing a little of that even today. The, the, the higher you go, I, I always boil it down to what that alderman told me in Chicago, which is the higher a monkey climbs on a pole, the more you can see his ass. The, <laughs> the higher you go in presidential politics, the more scrutiny you get. Right. Uh, uh, the more difficult it becomes, as it should be, because you're auditioning for the toughest job on the planet. You, uh, so you reunited with Carville. I, uh, I was evicted from my apartment on Capitol Hill because uh, Dick didn't pay us for four months. And uh, uh, Carville took me in. He had a one-bedroom apartment, um, tiniest little hovel, and, and, and yet he took me in and let me sleep Was on this a sofa. basement apartment? Or? It was a basement apartment. Yes, yeah. uh, we used to call it the Batcave. Le- uh, yeah, legendary. Uh, yeah, it became legendary. Back then, it just needed uh, fumigation. And I slept in a sofa, which wasn't bad. You had to wrap yourself in saran wrap. But uh, Did you have to watch <laughs> Andy of Mayberry re- we, uh, Yes, I became an uh, addict. You're right. James is a, was the uh, D.C. chapter president of the Andy Griffith <laughs> uh, Show fan club. Uh, but I, you know, I never forgot that. You know, he took me in. I was literally broke, and then he got me a job as Lautenberg's press secretary. Frank was up for re-election, tough race. I had no job and no money, um, and in fact, had to borrow money from my then girlfriend to stay afloat and to keep Carvel and Begala afloat. So Diane Friday, now Diane Begala, uh, went and bar- she had a real job. She borrowed five thousand dollars, a lot of money in in the eighties, and I, I realize now as I'm talking about, it, I've never paid her back. So <laughs> 28 or whatever years of marriage yes, later. She asked me to ask you, by the way, when when that's going to be paid she, off. She but. married me for her own money. It was the only hope <laughs> of being repaid. Uh, yeah, so that was another uh, battle royale, the Lautenberg uh, race. He was a crusty old Ooh. dude when he was a younger dude. Um uh, and uh, then, of course, came back later in his life. You had a number that talk about campaigns as sort of 
You had a number of uh, young guys in that campaign who were uh, who became close associates. Your of friend Michael, Larry Grizzolano was our political director. Was Gian Greco there as well? Pete no, Greco? no, uh, John Anzalone. John Anzalone uh, yes. was our, like, who's a who's a now a pollster for uh, Hillary Clinton. Uh, and Karen Olick, who's one of the top media consultants, was our deputy campaign manager. I was the press secretary. My deputy press secretaries were a woman named Debbie Sack, who's with Columbia University now, a top executive at Columbia, and Neil McBride. Hmm. who went on to serve Joe Biden for years in the Senate and then was our U.S. attorney in, in the Eastern District you of Virginia. You know, we should, we should note. It's a pretty talented group. Kids always ask me, like, how do you get to be you? And, you know, you, and or how do you get to be Paul McGall and so on? You get to do that by just jumping in and taking on whatever task you can, find a candidate you care about, right. find a campaign you're interested in, and give it your all, and you will... If you have a passion for this, you will find those opportunities. And uh, but it's true. I was my, my very first state senate race. I was still in the in the in, the, in college, and Doggett was up for re-election. So this is eighty-one. And I'm a kid, and I was like, you know, the the really lowest ranking kind of intern going to get coffee and sandwiches. And the worst thing that could happen happened. Our opponent dropped out of the race. And, of course, Doggett was jumping around dancing. The campaign manager, a guy named Russ Tidwell, who is still my friend. I still call him boss. And boss Tidwell cause sees me in the corner fighting back tears. He said, what's the matter? I said, this is the only job I could ever get. I'm through. And he said, he said it. I remember he said, as long as you can walk and chew gum, you can find work in politics, kid. Yeah. <laughs> I never forgot that. You, uh, you guys went on to Georgia and worked for Zell Miller, who was another sort of luminescent personality, ended up... Uh, sort of on the wrong side of history. In the Senate, but, the, the, but by far the best governor Georgia ever produced. Really remarkable. He transformed his state. He, he created a state lottery, which many states did in the 80s. But he understood power better than any of the rest of them. I mean it, in a way like that the founding fathers did. So he locked in all that lottery revenue, not to su- supplement or supplant existing revenue, but to create a new program, the Hope Scholarship. To this day, over 90% of the kids at the University of Georgia are going free. They're going for free. If you maintain a B average, so there's standards. You maintain a B average. You go to college tuition free. And if, if you're higher, you can get uh, books free, even room and board free. It has transformed their state and kept the smartest kids. And the lottery money has actually gone to education. It actually has gone. It's because the only that's state I know the, that did it right. Yeah, right. Because, because it's that's sick. always always the, the thing, you know, which is that lotteries are sold as uh, programs for education and then the money is it's sort of a shell game and the money Absolutely. is just used to enhance the, the rest of the budget. The only state that did it right because it's locked into their constitution. It can't be spent on other things. Some of it went to pre-K actually. There's mm-hmm. two things which we did. Great. Which also so, so he yeah. got them at the front end. So what happened? What happened with Zell Miller because he ended up speaking which convention did he end up speaking at Republican? He convention? did. He spoke in the, he gave the keynote address for Bill Clinton in the 1992 convention, which is still one of the great speeches about what it is to be a Democrat. I'm serious. It ranks up there with Mario Cuomo and Barbara Jordan. Mm-hmm. It is worth people getting out. It Don't forget Barack statement. Obama. Probably the best. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Um, it, but it's a statement about what it is to be a Democrat. Yeah. Um, and then what happened, I think, I, th- I do, and I think his governor record uh, as populist, progressive, is unmatched in Georgia history. And he got to the Senate, and he just hated it. He got there accidentally and tragically. He was pretty close to Paul Coverdell, the senator who died tragically. Uh, the Democratic governor at the time, Roy Barnes, really urged him, because Miller had retired as governor, the most popular figure in the state, begged him to take it, and, and Zell didn't want to do it. I remember talking to him. In between that, by the way, I was working in the White House. President Clinton had me call Zell and offer him Secretary of the Navy 
Zell was an old Marine. He would have mm-hmm. been great at it. And I remember him saying, you know, God, that would be the job of a life. But I promised Shirley that we'd, you know, stay in the, in the mountains of Georgia and, and not, not go off on another political adventure. And he just hated it. Hated the Senate. And, and you know, that's, that, that happens to lots of governors. Yep. You know, you're, when you're governor, you actually do stuff. Actually, not just governors, because I remember Barack Obama walking out of the Senate chambers one day. And I met him outside the chambers, and uh, and he said, "Blah blah blah." That's all we do here is talk. Right. And, and, and for- it, w- it really bothered him that uh, it, you know that the, the process there was uh, so so tedious. And uh, and that is the job description. The Senate should. That's yes. what the founders wanted. They wanted them to deliberate and to talk. But if you're an action-oriented person, the way the president is, the way Zell is, the, the, the Senate can be very difficult. And he just, he just hated it. And, uh, but how did that turn him into a guy who spoke at the Republican convention? He, he just became increasingly Which convention angry. Did he, speak he spoke at? at the Bush 2004 convention. Yeah. He did. And, um, you know, it really strained our friendship, to say the least. Um, Carville publicly broke with him. And, and had donated to Zell's campaign, publicly said, I want my money back. It was just a bitter, bitter break. And... and I'd say I was thinking about doing the same. And, and this guy, I mean, he, he he called me his third son. I mean, I'm really close to him. And I was thinking about doing that. And I got a call from someone who said, look, you need to never do that. Never publicly attack this man. And I said, why? And the person said, because the chances are really good that you'll outlive him. And you don't want that on your conscience. This guy's been too important in your life. That person was Hillary Clinton. Hmm. She called me up like an older sister and said, just set the politics aside. I'm, I'm totally with you. And, and she maintained a relationship and a friendship with Zell. It didn't really reflect in Zell's votes. He voted with Bush almost all the time. But it was just a human thing. And, and it, it was – today, Zell and I are really close again. And so was James, by the way. He's gone to visit him. The governor's had some, some health concerns. And um, it was a real blessing, that advice, that no matter what your political differences is, are, this is somebody who I love and who I have real history with. He introduced me to Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton would have never hired Carville and me if it hadn't been for Zell Miller. And on top of that, he just personally been such an important part of my life. And I'm really glad that I didn't give in to those kind of more angry impulses. There is um, there's another reason why Bill Clinton hired you guys. You guys were involved in this extraordinary Senate race in Pennsylvania uh, in 1991. It was a special election, uh, and uh, the, the uh, uh, Republican candidate was the very, very— popular former governor, cabinet member, uh, and you had Harris Wofford, uh, and, uh, who was unknown, a former Kennedy administration civil rights uh, official, was deeply involved in the civil rights movement as part of the, the uh, Democratic administration, but really not uh, highly touted as a candidate. It was sort of, he was thrown in there to be the sacrificial uh, lamb. What happened in that race? Well, uh, first, you know, Senator Hines died tragically. In a yes, in a, in a plane crash. Just the most beloved person in Pennsylvania politics, by both sides of the aisle. And that was just horrible. So my client, Governor Casey, was, you know, tasked by the state constitution to select an interim senator. And uh, he, you know, he thought hard about it. He looked at, at uh, as I recall, uh, uh, General Kelly, uh, from from the Gulf War, I think he d- d- thought yeah, actually thought about Rich Trumka at one point. Thought about Lee Iacocca, but settled on Harris, who was a friend of his. Harris had worked for Martin Luther King. Harris wrote a law review article 
in the 50s that suggested that the civil rights movement should adopt Gandhi's tactics of nonviolent social change. He had, in 19 years old, he had gone to India and written a book about Gandhi just after Gandhi was killed. So he and King became very close at the very beginning of King's uh, public career as a civil rights activist. He was very close to Dr. King and helped write many of his speeches mm -hmm. and books. Then he transitioned and worked for President Kennedy through Sarge Shriver, who was a great mentor of Harris's. So he represented kind of the greatest of democratic liberalism. And um, Casey appointed him to the Senate. And uh, we also had a secret weapon. Mike Donilon was our pollster. Mike yeah. wound up being a key advisor to Vice President Biden. I know you work closely with him. Yes, he's a partner in my old firm now. And, you know, Absolutely yeah, he's brilliant. one. Of, Mike's is an interesting guy because he started as a pollster right. and uh, wound up as a media consultant. And he, he is a brilliant guy. He Absolutely is a, one brilliant. of the brilliant minds in politics. He, our first poll, we were 47 points behind. And you do, but, but the margin of error could have been 43. <laughs> could have been 46. Yes. But, you know, you do the battery of issues. This was so instructive. And um, it was jobs, economy, unemployment. You know, everything was clustered around the recession that was uh, pretty uh, hard in Pennsylvania. And toward the bottom at 3% health care. It was an open-ended question. 3% health care. And, and Donald and I talked to Wofford about it. Wofford at the time was Casey's Secretary of Labor and Industry, dealing with all of these factory closings. And, and, and Wofford said, you know, the truth is the jobs problem is really a healthcare problem. It's like all of these plants, all of these guys, they're having such a hard time meeting their healthcare costs. This was steel and mining and, you know, the great industries that built Pennsylvania. He said their real problem is healthcare costs. So the truth is, if you want to do something about jobs, you've got to do something about healthcare. Yeah. And Boy, did that work. And, and at one point, he <clears> called me up. I was just turning 30, and I was a campaign manager. And so I was really, you know, under a lot of stress. And Harris was a great guy, but like any good person, hated raising money. So I rode him like a barred mule. Got to raise money. So he went to a fundraiser, and he called me up. How'd it go, Harris? What you got? And he said, well, not much money, but some really good ideas. I was like, can I, <laughs> can I swear on this? <laughs> yes, yes, yeah, please. It's like, a podcast. If you can't swear on a podcast, where can you okay, swear? Okay, well, turn the volume down if the kids are in the car. God damn it, Harris. I can't fucking spend ideas. I need money. And he said, well, just hear me out. I said, fuck. No, I, what? And, and finally, he got me to calm down. And he said, an ophthalmologist said to me, you know, Harris, your intellectual forebearers were lawyers, and they wrote the Constitution. That's why there's a right to a lawyer. But if mine had written it, they would have said they were doctors. My intellectual forebearers, they would have said, well, if a criminal has a right to a lawyer, then a working person has a right to a doctor. Yes. And I... The light went off, and we made. And you that did ad, that ad. Turned you everything did around. That ad. Yeah, that was. And it put healthcare back on the national agenda in a way it had not been for me. You know, years. it's funny because um, Senate races uh, and governors' races, statewide races, paid media really matters. Right. I think it matters more than I hate to say this to a guy who's now we'll get to it running a super PAC, running ads in a presidential race, but particularly later in the race. Um, you know, they don't get covered the way presidential candidates That's get right. covered. Uh, governors' races, Senate races are not MRIs for the soul. And so you have a lot more uh, of an ability to influence those races with paid media. That ad, if, that ad will go down in history as uh, one of the most impactful ads. How much did, when you put that health care ad on, how much did it move the race? Well, we wound up. From 47 points behind, we won by 10. It was an upset landslide. Yeah. It, which, if we'd had another week, we'd have won by 20. Um, yeah. and Against a former attorney general, former... A, a great guy, by the way. Yeah. A, a fine two-term governor. And the, the 
the attorney general of the incumbent president, who was at 91% because of the Gulf War. Yeah. Our last rally, this is where, again, being a campaign manager and a hack, Wofford is a visionary. Wofford was speaking in, in Washington, Pennsylvania, southwest Pennsylvania, which is, you know, blue-collar country. And he got up there and he got carried away and he said, not only are we going to defeat Dick Thornburg, but if I win, it will be the beginning of the end of the Bush presidency. Like, holy shit, Harris. <laughs> guys at 91%. Can we just deal with the beloved two-term governor we're taking on? Not take... And he said, I just told the truth, Paul. He said, and he did. He said, if I win this, Bush is through. Yeah. It, it's amazing. He was exactly well, right. Well, he was right. And, and so you, then got, you guys then took this win, this harbinger of something that was going on out there, and you, and you teamed up with Bill Clinton. What, was, what were your meetings with him like when you, when you uh, were uh, talking to him about doing that race? Zell Miller called us up. First off, Clinton had gone to visit Zell in the governor's mansion. He said, I'm going to run. This is 91. And Zell says, I'll endorse you. I'll move up my primary so the South will have more, more say early. I'll move up the Georgia primary. And he had the kind of power to do that, and he did. And kind of in his aside, he said, I hired these boys that ran my campaign. Who are they? James Carville and Paul Begala. Clinton said, I never heard of them. Zell said, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe mm-hmm. we've had too many people right. you know, in Washington losing these races. So this is before Harris Wofford made Carville and I semi-well-known. And so Clinton, probably just as a courtesy to Zell, called us up. And we went to see him. My recollection is about September. It was in Washington, D.C., at one of these hotels on Capitol Hill. And we went in and just sat with Clinton and his, his friend and uh, lawyer, Bruce Lindsay, mm-hmm. just the four of us for hours. And it was love at first sight because it's the first time a politician had treated me like a voter and a citizen first and a strategist second. We talked very little about strategy. He did not say, uh, look, Miller's going to move up the Southern primary. That'll help. And my wife's from Illinois, so actually I'll do better there than people think. And, you know, I, I, mm-hmm. none of that. It was, I still remember it. So this is 1991. He's like, you know, my kid is like in fifth or sixth grade. I can't remember. My daughter. And she's going to come of age in this new century that's coming. And I'm really scared to death of what it's going to look like. And he went through the economic problems and the social uh, problems that we had. And he treated us like we loved our country instead of just like we were hacks. And man, that was, it was the, it was the best possible way to make me fall in love with him. And we did. And we walked out. And I remember uh, I said to James, usually these candidates are sort of often, these candidates are sort of empty vessels. You right. Put no, no. In. They say, tell me how I can win. Yeah. Right. And, and Carville just said, my only question is, is he too good to be true? Mm-hmm. Which actually a lot of voters were saying later on when he first you know, burst on the scene nationally. It's like, oh, slick Willie, is he too good to be true? But um, it, was, it really was love at first sight. And then we won so the Washington campaign. So he came up with a couple of foibles to relieve them of we, their anxiety. Yeah, we, huh? did. we found a few imperfections, if you look carefully. So, you know, <laughs> I want to just stop you on one thing, because you said something that, that, that I really believe. I, I, you know, I spent most of my career, except for the two years I served with the president, operating out of the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And I, I always carry with me this, this lesson that uh, Gary Hart told me when he was running for president. He said, just remember, Washington's always the last to get the news. And what I found in the White House, and I don't know how you found uh, you, you, uh, your experience was, but uh, I always thought it was very hard to get a read on the country mm-hmm. from that building, because you're sort of in a submarine looking at America through a through a periscope, and you have polling and you have focus groups, but you're not out there. You're not down at the at the corner 
a store. You're not, uh, what's the name of the place that you worked at when you were a kid? Oh, yeah. Oh, at, at Mr. Court's, Court's Hardware. Hardware yes. Yeah. You're In not... Stafford, Texas. Mr. Court probably taught me more around the nail bin. Yeah. Yes, that's a big, and it's why in the campaign, the best job was mine. I traveled with Bill Clinton. We went to 48 states. And first, if you get a chance to spend a year of your life sitting next to Bill Clinton on yeah. an airplane, I highly recommend it. It's the greatest education. Were you able to, to draw him out? But, yes. <laughs> but uh, as you know, with, uh, with Senator Obama at the time, you wind up talking. We talked religion. You know, we talked sports. We talked about life. We, my wife and I were having our first baby in the middle of that campaign. It wasn't just, you know, how can I win uh, New Hampshire? Um, and, and, that exp- and then you get out there, particularly in a campaign, it's harder in the White House. You're right. Um, I always tried to travel with him as much as yes. I could, even in the White House, because you can, you, at least I could peel off. Yes. And, and I would do that frequently. I'd go and peel off, you, you know, and go to, like, the hardware store on, the, on the, the courthouse square, you know, where the candidate or the president is speaking. If you can get out and talk to people, there's nothing like that. And it is, it is a really isolating, uh, as you know, yeah, experience. Yeah, no, it is. The, the, the town itself is, a, is an echo chamber, and often the echo is wrong about what's going on in the but country. See, that's why I think it helps so much that you're rooted in the Midwest. I'm still rooted in Texas. You know, my yeah. son is going to school there. I, 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 all my family and still friends are still advising the student government. I still talk. Yeah, yeah. but I think that, that those, those initial experiences, they cut. They matter. And I still do think about, like, the guys around the, the hardware store or Uncle Buster, God rest his soul, Mr. Court, who owned the hardware store. His Uncle Buster was our local uh, JP, Justice of the Peace. Uh, He'd been on the Bataan Death March. Now, he wasn't real happy when people drove a Japanese car up to that hardware store. It didn't make him a racist, okay? But, like, understanding, mm-hmm. like, uh, the, I love the coasts, but the real America, it, it, it really is important to, to, to have that grounding. And so even you're sitting in a White House, you're still grounded in a real place. And I think that helps a lot. Speaking of Bill Clinton, uh, I've spent some time with him as, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I feel lucky to have done that. And you helped reelect him in 1996. He, uh, but he is, um, you know, he's a complicated guy uh, because I, I don't think I've ever met anybody uh, smarter. Um, but, and, and his interest in policy is dip, deep mm-hmm. and it's rich. Um, but on the other hand, there seems to be on the other side. There seems to be this this sort of need, this need for approbation, this this thirst for the, the and and that has created this duality. In fact, I remember James Saint Carville saying to me in uh, March '92 when he came through for the Illinois primary uh, that he was extolling all of Clinton's virtues. And the only question is, is there stuff that he's willing to lose for? He needs to show that there are things that he's willing to lose for. Um, and that approbation seems very important to him. And then, mm-hmm. of course, he had his other... You came back to the White House in the midst of his greatest crisis, which is was the Lewinsky... Right, just before it hit. <laughs> and I, then in between... Just before it hit. And then so. in be, oh, is that right? Yes, Good I started timing back there. in the beginning of 1997. Uh, uh, no, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was January of 98 when that happened. Yeah. Uh, but there was also this interlude where uh, he brought Dick Morris into the right. White House... Uh, who had helped craft Jesse Helms' campaigns and so on, completely antithetical to your politics. Right, so I left. I moved to Texas. I, I, I never publicly uh, broke with the president. 
But I moved my ass to Texas. I taught at the University of Texas. I went into doing PR with my buddy Jack Martin, Matthew Dowd, who yes. wound up wearing, Mark McKinnon. And public Strategies. A group called Public Strategies. Uh, because life was too short. I, I, I just, I didn't, it was not uh, an approach that I was uh, comfortable with. But I, my, my loyalty, here's how I worked it out. My loyalty to the president was I could never publicly break with him or mm-hmm. attack him. It would not be fair, given the access and the... And the of the, course. The, the, but I also wasn't going to work with, with uh, an approach that I didn't think was uh, consistent with my own approach. And so that's how I, and, and, you know, but by the my time question to you is how, what, what, how do you explain it in his mind? How do you explain his affinity for, uh, or, or, or willingness to work with, bring in uh, a Dick Morris, even if it costs him a, a, a a Begala, Carville, and and others. He, you know, he just had the worst defeat up to that point in the that, midterms. That a Democrat yeah. had in the midterms. We lost fifty six House seats, and I think that's seven, nothing, man. We, I know. You know, thank God the Obama <laughs> people set the bar higher. But Roosevelt it, lost seventy eight in nineteen thirty eight. I always tell Every myself guy. that. Well, and and, and so uh, by the way, that's part of the answer anyway, to the question of what would you lose for? Right? Mm-hmm. He went way out there on guns. The most progressive gun law we've ever had. Far more than we could get today. Uh, the Brady Bill, a waiting period, a background check. Do you think that's uh, why a he ban on assault weapons? Do you think weapons. that's why he got uh, of the fifty-six seats? The NRA's analysis said nineteen were because of guns alone. So no, but but nineteen of them were guns alone. Some of them because he tried to give equal rights to gays in the military, and that that caused a, a huge uproar. Right? He wanted gays and lesbians to be able to serve openly and honestly uh, in the military, as long as the compromise was don't ask, don't tell. But he was standing up for for gay rights in the early 90s when it wasn't a very popular position. He also raised taxes, especially on the rich, but some on the middle class, right. uh, to try to get the deficit under which control. Which he did. Which, which, which all wound up working. I actually think, the, the so those were lots of things that he stuck his neck out on and paid an enormous price. So when you lose, as you know, that catastrophically, um, you're kind of at sea. And so he's looking for, for other different, better, hopefully, advice. I don't think it was better, but... And Morris had been a guy who'd advised him previously, long before Carville. When he came back and won his governor's seat back after losing it. So to me, it wasn't crazy. It just wasn't an approach that I was comfortable with. And so I was happy to to see him reelected. I I helped a little on the debates, but otherwise didn't have much to do with the reelection. As you know, you 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 were uh, central to that. 96 well, victory. Central. I was a kibitzer, but... No, you're central. But, you know, I came around for the debates because I mm-hmm. liked them and he wanted yeah. me to help. But to me, that's kind of how he he squared that is I, I was in trouble before and this guy helped me with a comeback. I'm in trouble again. Maybe he can help me again. To and me, it he, wasn't crazy. It just wasn't my own approach. But he steered him sort of to uh, further, a little bit more to the right. You know, you had Doma come after that and some, right. other, some other things that, that really... And, you know, the era of big government right. is over and all of that. Yes, but, and, and I could never defend Doma, and I don't believe his heart was in it when he signed it. Well, he's okay. renounced it. And, and, and rightly so. It was, it was, I think, the wrong thing to do. Um, but the critical, I'm told from people who were in the room, the critical advice that he got at the time from his political team was compromise with the Republicans and cut entitlements so as not to have a government shutdown. Because we're the, the Democrats are party government. If the government shuts down, it'll be a catastrophe for you. And Clinton listened, but rejected that. And he stood firm against uh, the Republicans' attempt to cut $270 billion, a huge cut out of Medicare. Medicare, yes. 
And he stood firm against that. That was not based on political advice. In fact, he rejected Morris's political advice if the people who were in the room were telling mm-hmm. me the truth. You know, I was living in Austin, but I'm, I'm, I believe that that was the case. And so the most important thing, he went with his own values instead of trying to do what was politically expedient. Okay, I, I, you know, I, and I, I, that's a tough thing to do. It wound up working, but at the time, it was a perfectly reasonable conclusion that a government shutdown would hurt the party of government more than it would hurt the Republicans. Let's fast forward uh, to this race and talk a little bit about, you obviously have known Hillary Clinton uh, for a long time and closely. You you said she counseled you on the Zell Miller. She did. And by uh, the way, when when I left her husband and he was not happy with me, she kept calling. She was passing through Austin. She called Mm -hmm. me up. She said, I'd like to see you. And we had all these little kids at the time. She said, bring the boys, bring Diane. And I can still mm-hmm. see it. She was in her hotel room. She was on the floor playing with the toddlers. And so, you know, you never see that on a campaign trail. She's much more reserved than yeah. her husband. Why? But this is how God made her. You know, it is an MRI. This whole part of her soul is that she's a reserved Midwesterner. And, and I wish that, that the, and I think it will, that the process will strip all of that reserve away. And people you know, it's interesting, see. though. I wonder if that reserve actually is going to work for her in a weird way. I don't think you can hide who you are. Right. But if you embrace your reservedness and, and maybe can explain it, because part of the contrast that she's trying to strike right now, and you're helping her strike it, is between someone who is measured, deliberative, uh, serious, Versus someone who who she she uh, and you are arguing is not in in uh, in uh, in Trump. See, this is why she needs you. No, that's exactly right. Is is think about Senator Obama, right? At every critical juncture, and people said, "Oh, that's a disaster. That's terrible." He doubled down on that. He didn't have experience, so he said, "Yeah, actually, but I was right about the war, the most important mm-hmm. decision of our time, and I was right." So experience doesn't get you anything. Um, when he said he'd negotiate with the Iranians. Uh, and everybody in the conventional establishment said that was terrible. He doubled down on it. Hillary is who she is. And I had someone, a journalist recently, oh, but Trump never uses a teleprompter and he's so impromptu. And I said, yeah, you know, Hillary's running for the presidency of the United States of America. And and as you have said, those words can launch armies and move markets. Right. And so, yes, she's very deliberate about that. And I do think she should celebrate that and highlight it because it's who she is anyway. Yeah. She's never going to be, you know, her husband would improvise in the State of the Union address. Yes, yeah. That's not her. So you right. got to be who you are. And yeah. I do think that contrast with Trump is really I wonderful. actually think her greatest liability is that she seems um, reticent about letting people know who she is. She is. That's, and, that's and, right. And uh, I think you need to, that is the price of admission in yep. certain ways when you're running for president. People need to know, they want to know who you are. They want to know that you're comfortable in your own skin. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, that's been a challenge for her. Huge challenge. It is not, it's hard to explain how much she hates that. It's not how God made her. And, and it's, she, it's a challenge. I, I, it's not that there's something terrible there. I've seen it. I mean, I've had drinks with her. I've danced with her. You know, I've had dinner with her, whatever. She's played with my kids. She was the first person outside my family to call Diane when she had Johnny, our first baby, in the middle of the campaign. Um, so I, I've seen a, that uh, part of her, as, and I've seen her, frankly, you know, in the greatest pain you could be in. Mm-hmm. And so I, I am 100% comfortable, honestly, with her heart and her soul. But Grace Payne, you're talking about the Lewinsky. The Lewinsky thing, you know, she, when, when, when she lost her father, she was, mm-hmm. it was early in the Clinton presidency, uh, at really, really awful moments. And she's a person of, uh, to my observation, such stellar character. 
but it's just hard for her to peel that back. It's just not – she wants politics to be about ideas and about platforms. And she's got a position paper on manufacturing and one on child care and mm-hmm. one yes, on, yes. on But that's in certain ways it's, – it's something she believes in. It's also her, her body armor yes. uh, in a sense. But, you know, uh, and I should say I've seen that side of her as well. She, she was a early – patron of, uh, really the patron saint of uh, Cure, my wife's epilepsy research foundation, and uh, was the first speaker at our first uh, event and spoke movingly, spent a day at an epilepsy clinic, saw these EEGs of kids who were going through these horrible storms in their brains and spoke about what that meant to her. So I've seen that side. The thing that Americans have also seen, though, is the email stuff. Mm -hmm. And what 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 where is that where does that come from is that also come from i don't want people looking inside my life does it come from being attacked for uh, that may be i mean you know they they really are out together there really was a vast right wing conspiracy and you know we laugh about it but it was jaw dropping and it's all been well documented now i mean there were sh- a couple of shadowy billionaires and a whole cadre of right wing groups colluding with ken starr to try to take out a freely elected Some president. of those conspirators are now uh, on her team, David Brock. That's a good point. She's yes. converted a couple of them. Yes. By the way, one, the, the guy who funded so much of it, Richard Mellon Scaife, wound up an admirer. Uh, and, and, and Bill Clinton, I think, spoke Clinton at Foundation. his funeral. He asked yeah. President Clinton, who he tried to destroy, to speak at his funeral. This, was, uh, this is another Bill Clinton lesson. He would quote Lincoln to me all the time. Uh, he'd say, I destroy my enemies. I make them my friends. Uh, and that's what Hillary's been able to do with David Brock, who was the most implacable uh, foe. So that's that, I think, is a pretty impressive thing. But what animates that? First off, I do think it was a mistake uh, to have private email. It was a mistake for previous secretaries of state as well. Yeah, but Every no, no. But they that, weren't running for president, but still, if that's... Not just that they weren't running for president. They didn't have their own servers. They're, it was... Mitt Romney bought and destroyed all the servers in the governor's office. And what kind of a story was that? Nothing. No, no there well, is a different standard. I was on the other the side. Press, we tried to make that a story. I know. Why didn't the press pick it up? Why? Well, because Romney is a person of great moral standing, and he is. He's a very good person. Yeah, he is. So is Hillary. There is this grinding sense in the press, and there always has been, that somehow the Clintons are crooked. Well, they came out of Arkansas, and, and I hate it, and it's a powerful bias in the press. It really is. And, and it's something she's had to struggle against every day. Now, was it a mistake to use a private server? Of course it was. Of course it was. She has said that. But, you know, I, the, the, the question is, do we... Yeah, I think, but I, I agree. But I think part of the problem is she said it in a lot of different ways and with a lot of different tones and a, lot, and, and a few different explanations. And, um, you know, it hadn't been well handled. It just right, hasn't we, been well we keep, handled. That's right. But it's, I think, behind her now. It's been baked in. It's caused some real political damage. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, her um, numbers took a dive. After sure, that. but the, you know the question people have to ha- have to ask is, you know, who's going to fight for me? You know, all of that toughness that sometimes people find uh, off-putting can be part of an advocacy plan. In other words, she, yeah, she's tough. She's tough as nails. She's the toughest person I know, and she's going to put that work to work fighting for me and fighting for folks who are poor, folks who are left out, then then that becomes an asset. Talk about the Trump uh, race here. You guys, you, you're, uh, what, what is your official title with Priorities I'm USA? an advisor. I'm a consultant to the super PAC that's helping to elect Hillary, the same one that helped reelect President Obama. This was an amazing thing. Uh, on, on election night, 30 minutes after CNN called the race for President Obama, I got a call from Jeffrey Katzenberg, our first donor mm-hmm. out in L.A., 
And he says, what do we do next? And I said, Jeffrey, I haven't even had time to get drunk. Mm-hmm. And he said, there's no time for that. Maybe he was trying to keep you out of trouble. He probably <laughs> yeah, knew about Hank the hallucination. Yeah. But he said, I, I, I hope Hillary runs and I want to be for Hillary. And almost to a person, I can't think of any Obama donors who we had who said, oh, I don't want her. It was remarkable how seamlessly that, that turned. So now, now I'm helping advise the super PAC. We are trying to do for her what we did uh, you know, on the margins, but we helped, I think, President Obama, which is define the Republican early. And, and with Romney, it was taking his business record and looking at it and giving it scrutiny. And there were some deals there that were really difficult, really savage, really cruel to working people. And those working people spoke out about him. We gave them a voice and a platform. With Trump, he wants to build a wall. I want to build a ceiling, right? He's got his 40, not even 40, 30, 35% of the vote. And it is ironclad. And he's right when he says, I could go on Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and not lose any of my voters. But, you know, that got him to 13 million votes. As you know, you need 65 or 70 million to right. win. The path between 13 and 70 is full of people who are not in his base. Unmarried women, college-educated uh, uh, women especially, young people, people of color. So I want to build a ceiling. And if you look, you know, we've been advertising very heavily on the outrageous things that Donald Trump has said about women, about national security, most powerfully about the disabled. Yes. And that's building a ceiling. Uh, there's, no, there's, there's only one national poll at the last 10 or 12 that has him even over 40. And he's got to get close to 50. Maybe with third and fourth parties, he can win with 49. But that's our job. And it, it begins with simply airing the statements that he's made and how it reacts. I know you, you've seen it, but there's yes. a family in North Carolina who have a little girl named Grace who has spina bifida, and we let them tell their story. We just turn the cameras on. And the mom says, all the kids at Grace's school know not to make fun of her disability. How can an adult not know that? And the dad says, well, that, that moment I got a chance to peer into Donald Trump's heart and soul, and I did not like what I saw. We should explain what the moment was. He mocked a, a reporter from the New York Times who has a congenital disability uh, that causes his hands to... Uh, uh, to, to to operate in in in, in, unu- in unusual ways. Right. And he did not mock his reporting, which right. is fair game. Okay, you don't like a reporter's reporting. You can say, oh, you know, John Doe is a crummy reporter. He mocked it was and mimicked moment. his disability, and and it was cruel. And as you know, I have a child with intellectual disability. So twenty one percent of us either are disabled or have a family member who is. I certainly do. That's a, that's a huge part of the country. Do you but think set that, that aside. Set aside that it's a big voting block. It's just a savage thing. And this is a window into his heart. Yeah. It is. I think that dad was right when he said that. No, I think, I, and I said uh, on a TV the other day that uh, people appreciate when he kicks the high and mighty in the butt. I think they enjoy it. It's different when you're, when you're mocking a, a vulnerable person. And uh, now, did you find in your research that... Uh, do you find in your research that uh, that moved people? It did. It did. Um, it moved lots of people. And um, what about women? Especially women, especially college-educated women. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you're thinking as a strategist rather than as, yes, as, as a, a family few, member yeah, who's yeah, got right. family members who are disabled, if you think as a strategist, yes, that that his path forward has got to be to do better with people with college degrees, women with college degrees, unmarried women, and and young people. He's pretty much killed himself with people of color. His path has got to be to maximize a white vote, especially among people with a college mm-hmm. degree. Um, those kinds of comments 
and people that's your ceiling. That that I think that builds a ceiling for Trump. He doesn't have as famously he doesn't have money right now, despite all of his uh, representations about his great wealth. He's not spending money. So you guys are basically going to these battleground states like shock and awe. You're 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 uh, you're you're running an air war where there's no there's no resistance to it. How uh, how damaging is that? Well, very. Very. I mean, and I what, what, what does the, the absence of is. money, in terms of not just advertising, but in terms of uh, the other things that a modern campaign, presidential campaign, does? How? How? What does that mean in these closely contested battleground states? It, it means he can't do the kind of people-to-people organizing that, frankly, the Obama campaign perfected. You know, it's, it's the it's mix 17th of century. data and. And personal on the, feet on the ground. It's that combination. Yes. That really was the breakthrough. And I mean, I mean, 100 years from now, people will study your campaign. Because from the beginning of the democracy, we had people-to-people campaigning. But then, you know, mass communications yes. came around. And a lot of us, and I was one of them, said, well, we don't really need to do field organizing anymore because we can advertise. And what you guys did was take the best of technology to make that field organizing so efficient and precise and personal and meaningful that when someone showed up at your door, she wasn't just like knocking randomly. She knew knew who you were. She knew what you cared about. She knew that you were persuadable or that you needed to be motivated to vote. Right. And and I think those things make a point or two difference. And if you're talking about closely contested states, uh, I think that could be very, very meaningful. I can't let you go without asking you this last question. Uh, Texas. Yes. Te- there's always this speculation as to when Texas is going to turn purple, when Texas is going to turn blue. Uh, do you see that in the in the in the near term, the midterm? You've got large unregistered numbers of Hispanic voters right, in that state. Problem. Texas is not a red state, as the great Jim Hightower used to say. It's a non-voting state. Uh, we had in the primaries, Texas had uh, the 49th best voter turnout, 49th. And at one point, there were two Texans running. Uh, you know, and Ted Cruz was on the ballot in the, in the Texas primary mm-hmm. and won the Texas primary, and still voter turnout was 49th out of 50. Uh, that's by design. The people who are running Texas now, the Republicans, who have dominated every single race for 20 years, they haven't lost a single statewide race in 20 years, and they're putting in place barriers to voting. Well, some of your protégés, Jen Brown and, and Jeremy Bird and some others have gone down there, and they're doing the Lord's work of registering folks and trying to expand the electorate. But it is a long and difficult process because people have been cut out and written off for so long that it's it, – it, when I was a kid, it was a one-party state for the Democrats. Now it's a one-party state for the Republicans. And the problem with that is the most committed – or they would be committed if we had a fully functional mental health system – the most crazy Republicans can dominate that that state in in the primaries. And so you're looking for a correction. It won't happen in this cycle, is the short answer. Uh, It will take time. But over time, um, we will be able to, I think, turn that. And it also takes the Republicans disqualifying themselves. You know, I I used to mock Bush. I I used to say W spoke Spanish so he could be bi-ignorant. But but he knew that prejudice against Latinos was no way to run a political campaign. And so he had a very progressive. He was for immigration reform. Yes. He was for bilingual ed. He, yeah. Rick Perry signed a law giving in-state tuition to the children of undocumented workers. Of course, because you want them to be smart and productive. So that was that's why Republicans in Texas, through the Bush and Perry era, reliably got 40% of Latino vote. 
That's changing now. Now there's a new crew, and they're running the same kind of hard anti-Latino uh, policies and messages that the National Republicans have been doing. So I, I think Texas will come around, but I, I, it takes a long time. Well, to maybe you got to go down day. there, man. Maybe you got to go back. <laughs> I go as often as I can. If you can take on Hank the Hallucination, certainly you can take on the... Anyway, Paul Begal, it's always great Thanks, to be with you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.